Hello there and welcome to the Pint-Sized Healing Podcast. My name is Max Thompson, let's get started. Hi everyone, I am here today, not just by myself, but with my fellow Swan Waters team member, Aubrey Cole. Hello. Hello, <laughs> I'm so glad to talk to you again. Yeah, yeah, uh, Aubrey and I haven't spoken uh, for a while, so we started this whole uh, podcast recording with about an hour's worth of, oh, what's your life like? What's my life like? <laughs> and now we're ready Catching to tell up is our good. stories. <laughs> That's the good thing I think though, with the whole Swan Waters team is that we were, we obviously all kind of came to the team in different ways and, you know, we each have our survivor story, but at the heart of it is just the friendship that we all developed through healing together, um, which I like. Um, so I met Aubrey when about a, i think a year after we started yeah 2015 2015 yeah same year i met my husband um <laughs> wow that was a good year oh no i'm lying <laughs> that was 10 years after i met my husband oh <laughs> i, I was gonna why. say man i i thought i thought for sure you guys were together i was like i don't know what happened okay. math is just hard today I was like, wait, hang on. That was 2005. <coughs> there was a five in there. It just threw me. <laughs> anyway, 2015. Yeah. And do you know what's funny? Because you used to run the Emotional Abuse Survivors Network back yep. in those days. In fact, the first message I ever saw of that uh, Facebook page was the fact that you had to stop the organization. <laughs> Yeah. That was the first thing I read was like, after all these years of doing this, I have to stop, um, which had to do with legal action from your um, endearing ex-husband. Um, Captain Crazy. Captain Crazy of the SS melodrama. Exactly. Yes. Captain Crazy <laughs> took legal action. You had to shut it down. And in response to that message, which was literally the first thing I ever read of yours, um, I send you a message saying, hey, we just started up this new organization last year. You want in? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you said yes. <laughs> I did. But okay, but I will admit to being a little bit weirded out. I was like, I'm not entirely sure who this person is. I mean, but I think that sounds like a good idea, but okay. <clears throat> but, I know, yeah. it, was, it was super cheeky of me, but um, it was, it was. It came out of nowhere, uh, but yeah, I just thought, hey, you know, if you need a new platform, we have one that we're just building up. So, um, and you which was about- great for me because I had been on my own for then at that point three years because I started writing on April the twenty sixth of twenty twelve, and I remember that date clearly because for me that was a transition date because it was the first time that I had said publicly what my experience was and I shared it with people that had known me for a long time, friends, neighbors, church members, 
people that had no idea the kind of life I was living behind closed doors. And so I wrote for over two years um, for that. And then, so I kept up the blog, Emotional Abuse Survivors Network, and published that and pushed that out and promoted it with the idea of somebody out there is feeling like this and they don't have anybody to talk to. Maybe somebody can benefit from what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And not too long after that, I was getting five or 6,000 hits a week. And the last time I remember checking it, it was 42 different countries that I was tracking to. And I kept writing, kept writing, kept writing. And that's actually what became the book. Yeah. Um, But I decided to, to do the Facebook page too. And I was doing side conversations and things. And that was a big, that was a big loss for me. I wasn't forced to do it by like a legal decision. Mm. It was part of the negotiations to try and get him to go away, which as you know, from having been in my life for now years, that didn't work. (laughs) No, no, that didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, you mentioned the book there. So all those old blog posts, um, we have, pulled them all together and they are in bodies in the basement um which is your book so that's two and a half years worth of your writing right it's and i'm i'm not sure if i remember but i I wrote almost every day 130 ish uh essays articles whatever you want to call them but um in there um and um like I had the a lovely privilege of, of editing a lot of that and putting it together in the actual book. And it's, yeah, it, it was so funny because I think I wrote you quite often like, Oh, I read this chapter and Oh, it just, you know, there was something that I learned from it or something <laughs> that I related to, uh, to my experience. Yeah, well, even yeah. though obviously I wasn't married to, um, uh, I wasn't married to my abuser. I was just born to her. <laughs> uh-huh just um but yeah you know it, it definitely so the book's on amazon so people can buy that there and um all those proceeds go into back into swan waters as well mm-hmm. which is always good news um so but i mean the book came a couple of years after we met though <laughs> it took us a little bit of time to get through about it did. And, so, and some of it was, you know, we had to go through a long process. I'm sure you remember it, but I want to tell everybody who's listening. We had to go through a long process of how do we make this usable to people? <clears throat> Not just the words, but the format. How do we tee it up? So I had to write, you remember, I had to write this whole prologue for the book yeah. and kind of give some background and do all of that. But I also... I have a very good friend who's an author. Her name is Joan Davis, and she writes um, kind of suspense romance things. They're they're pretty intense. Um, but Joan Davis helped me to do a first pass of edit on that. And the interesting thing about that is that Joan Davis, I went to high school to post captain group, and um, we were actually in theater together. She was in his his graduating class and I was a couple years behind and she was able to have some insights into not just how to structure it but she she was really forced to understand the dynamics 
of our relationship all the way back at that time. You know, mm. I was 15 years old. And Joni, Joni said, oh my God, this completely explains why you did so-and-so. Remember that one time in, in drama when you did so-and-so? And it was because she realized that he was controlling me. Right. And that he was inciting behavior. Because maybe it's a good idea to just kind of give the overall story of Aubrey and Captain Crazy. You guys met in high school. Mm-hmm. Yep. He was, um, I was a, well, when I first met him, I was a freshman and he was a senior and then he failed his senior year and repeated it. Um, so when we started dating, I was a sophomore and he was a senior. And, um, now at the age of 52, I have a lot of clarity about how that ended up to be the way it was, but he very early began to alter and maneuver my um, perception of myself Hmm. and get me to see myself in a way that was not true, but would open me up to his control. Um, And it, and it went on and some of it, I mean, in retrospect, I, I look back and I think, you know, I remember having this conversation with Joni. She goes, wait a minute, he did this and, and, and you didn't break up with him. I remember he left to go to the Navy when I was um, still in high school and he called me one night late on a Friday night and said, I heard you were sitting next to this person at the football game. Who said you could do that? Why were you doing that? And it was a guy, it was a guy friend, it was a guy that I'm still friends with. And he was in another state. I was in Florida. He Uh was in Virginia. And he had, so it was an instantaneous realization that he had people spying on me. Yeah. And he did this throughout our relationship. You know, it was, um, it w- it was unnerving to say the least, but I was, um, I was a senior in high school at that point. My father had just died. I didn't have any, really anyone to go to for advice to go, um, is this normal? <laughs> like, I'm not sure what to think about this. Um, but it was a, a long and very road of losing my self-identity and somehow gaining it back. Yeah. And um, it's, I mean, it's, yeah. that doesn't sound subtle, but it starts more subtle than that. Like that was, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, like it, it's something that gradually builds over the years because you were with him 25 years. We were married for 25 You were married for 25 years. Right. And so, and yeah, just 25 years. Um, <clears throat> I always, I always, and I think it's important that we say this because so many people, I think so many people wonder like, oh, but why didn't you leave? Which I, I mean, I hate the question, but um, maybe we can just touch upon that for, for a second, because I think so many people, and I've even had it when I worked for an abusive boss and he would, I mean, he would slap me for making, you know, for making typos and that kind of stuff. He would hit me uh, like across the head. He would slap me across the head and people go like, well, why didn't you just, why didn't you just quit? And I was like, well, he didn't do it during the job interview because I wouldn't have taken the job. It's something that builds up and it's, and it, and you get to a point where that's okay. (laughs) Like where in your mind, that's okay. Um, even if at some level, you know, that it's not, but, but you, at the same time, 
you don't see that it's not. Yeah, you begin to view it as normal. So yeah. let's talk about some of the subtle things. We would be at lunch in the school cafeteria and I would go to put, let's just say I would go to put ketchup on my hamburger and he would say, no, don't use that. Ketchup, ketchup on a hamburger sucks. Use this mustard. So very subtle things that begin to say your choices are not trustworthy. Your vision is not trustworthy. Your perception is not trustworthy. You know, why, why are you wearing those pants with that top? Um, these criticisms and little digs that eventually, you know, if you are not prepared, and I was not, my, my mom did not talk to me about how to have a relationship. She never, I, I didn't have any role models to teach, female role models to teach me and what wasn't, except to the extent of how my dad treated my mom, which was like she walked on water. But <clears throat> I spent a lot of time as a teenager in my, in my teens and early 20s letting him redefine me in, sut in subtle ways that just took root. So you begin to question your ability to even make a rational decision. Um, you know, why did you buy that color top? Why did you buy yellow instead of red? Um, I don't, yeah, I don't like your hair that way. Can you darken it? And it's the questioning because I mean, it's not like someone suggesting, Hey, you should try mm -hmm. mustard on your hamburger and see if you like it. it right. right. It's not, it's not a suggestion or a, Hey, you should try because obviously there's always a little bit of that going on in a relationship. Like you try new things because the other person, that's what the other person likes and you see if you like it also, which right. you might. Um, but it's that, that little bit of, your choice is the wrong choice. My choice is the better choice. Yeah. It's a directive. It's yeah, never exactly. a suggestion. It's a directive. And I remember, um, you know, it was funny. One of the things that I did when I finally got away from him is I colored my hair. And the only reason that's a big deal is I colored it a color he did not like <laughs> because he had always, I really prefer your hair dark. And so I went red. I was like, you know what? I think I'd like to be a redhead for a while. <laughs> So Just I it's can. those things. Yeah. Yep. And it's those things. And it's you know, those types of directives or questions. Things like, um, I, we talked about this. Why did, you, why did you not put the chair over there? I mean, of little things. These were mm -hmm. not like major life decisions, right? Because a major life decision, it would be completely obvious. Exactly. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's really starts telling you no, can't do that. or I'm not going to agree with that. That's a, yeah, that's obvious. Yeah, that's obvious. But it's things like, um, I remember one time I was redecorating the two front rooms of our house. We had a living room and a dining room on the front of our house and I was redecorating them, changing the colors and stuff. And, and I had asked him, you know, here's, here's what I want to do. Okay. With you because that that's partnership, right? He right. live here too. Do you, are you going to like these colors? But he would start to come in and say things like, um, I can't believe you put that chair in that corner. Why would you put that chair in that corner? And I'm thinking it's a fucking chair. It's not nailed down to anything. Move it. If you don't like it, I don't care. You know, but it was the, the subtlety of why did you do so? Or, I thought you were going to do this and such. And that's what I wanted. Yeah. 
it's all in how it's raised. You know, anybody can see something that's painful. But this is what I think is the 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 magic bullet for people like this is that they are so good at redefining your perception of yourself. And there's an old truism, and I know that you know this, and probably half the people at least that are listening to this know this. When an abuser can no longer control you, their next step is to control other people's perception of you. Yeah. In that time, controlling your of your how great my job was, it didn't matter how clean the house was, how terrific the kids were, it didn't there were things that were always wrong and they were always personal. They were about me. Mm. That's what changes you. Yeah. And that's yeah. why it took so long um, to get free. Yeah. And it, because you, you really do start doubting your own abilities and your own opinions and you, like you start questioning so much about yourself that, um it takes something to get to that point where you're like do you know what no enough's enough you you had a total of four attempts am i right fourth attempt you got yeah. out yeah fourth attempt i got out and fourth was just super de duper lucky and very well played let's put it that way yeah i mean luck is definitely uh, a factor um i think uh you know an opportunity uh um arising in your case he decided to move away for a job right yep and the the reason that he decided to do that so this is this is very interesting how this ended up evolving um when we were we took our daughters on vacation to europe um in may of 2009 and it was the first time, you know, I was really excited to show them London and Paris and take them on this grand adventure. And they were little, they were seven and 11 and we were just having big fun. Took them to Euro Disney. <laughs> Don't ask me why. But um, he had a complete explosion in a train station at the children. Um, we were leaving. It was actually the end of the vacation. We were leaving and we were coming down. Um, we were actually in Paris. I think we were at Gare du Nord and we were coming down to the platform and there was a train there and he, hurry up, hurry up. We got to catch this train. Well, these kids are little and they're pulling their own suitcases mm. and it's stairs. And so they're kind of, we're trying to move along, you know, and I grabbed the little one's bag and I'm running with two bags and, um, he gets on the train before us and he tells him, get it. Well, the doors started beeping and they knew enough to know when the doors start beeping. That's when you stop. You don't try to get on the train. And they were both scared and they were like, no, 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 we can't, we can't. The doors are going to close. So he starts screaming at them. I'm your father. When I tell you to get on the train, you get on the train. And I looked at him and I said, well, we're going to get the next one. It's in two and a, two and a half minutes or something stupid. He gets off the train and absolutely loses his shit Abs and grabs their suitcases and throws them down wow. the platform and starts screaming at them. And I remember the whole way home, 
and now we're talking 12 hours of transit, right? So eight hour transatlantic while we, we took the train back to London, then we flew from London back to Atlanta. And yeah, it was a long, it was a long haul. That whole way back, all I could see was my girls' faces because we got on the train that came next and they went and they had their little souvenir hats from Disney and they had them on. And I'll, I will never forget this. It was, it was a decade ago and I still can remember it so clearly. They sat in separate seats and slumped down and pulled their little hats down over their eyes. And I could see tears dripping down both of their cheeks. And I remember standing there holding onto the pole and thinking, I can't let this happen anymore. I this is my responsibility to put a stop to this. I can't let this happen anymore. So a couple of weeks after that, I told him that I was divorcing him. So that was my first mistake as I announced it. I didn't go put things in place before, yeah. <laughs> before doing it. Um, <clears throat> but I said, you know, this is, this is not okay. We're, we're done. So we're going to figure out how to unravel this and you go your way. I'll go mine. We'll arrange for you to, do you know, have time with the children, whatever. And, and he stuck hooks in me. Part of that was, you know, you'll never survive without me. There's no way you can take care of the kids. You don't even have a job. And by the way, I'm not going to pay you shit to take care of the children because you don't deserve it. His own children, his uh -huh. own children that he had almost no interaction with, by the way. Um, Short sure. And during this time, he had been consulting for this company in the state of New York for two years, flying back and forth. Suddenly, he gets this brilliant idea that he's going to take a permanent job with them and move us from Georgia to New York. Now, what was in Georgia? My entire support system. Mm. Even though these are people that didn't really know what was going on behind closed doors, they didn't know what our life was like. But that was my support system. Yeah. He realized that he was at risk of me getting free, right? Yeah. So his, his idea was, great, I'll just take a job and move them to New York. And then she, she can't pull away from me because she won't have anywhere to go. And she won't have any friends there. And, and he had convinced all these people in New York that he is such a great guy. right? He's such a great guy. Um, <clears throat> even though he was cheating on me at the time, by the way. Um, but... I, I'm sure he I didn't just, discuss that in the job interview. <laughs> uh, no, not particularly. I had the wherewithal to hire myself a um, private investigator up there. Uh, yeah, so his, his MO was very common to this type of abuser. He Absolutely. had already gotten, yeah, he had already gotten other people's perception of him. Um, to be because he can keep up the act right he can yep. keep up the act in front of people and his idea was okay i'm gonna isolate her i'm gonna take her and the kids make them move up to new york where everybody and then she won't be able to go anywhere so as time went on i started to see um because the the way it works in the u.s is if you relocate for a job usually the employer makes you sign a contract that they'll pay for the relocation, but you have to stay for a certain amount of time. And so one day I got the idea, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on. The kids are in school. I can make an excuse to make us, you know, stay here to finish out the semester, or finish out the year. He'll have to sign 
a relocation, which means he'll have to stay there for a year or come up with $20,000 to pay them back with. Wait a minute, I think there's an opportunity here. And that was the, the window I finally had. That is so rare. That situation was a matter, I still look back on it, you know, almost 10 years later and think how all the stars aligned for that to happen. Um, but yeah, that was, that was how I finally got away was he was position where he couldn't have direct access to me physically anymore. Hey, Carrie, I just wanted to interrupt myself to make a confession. And what confession would that be, Max? Uh, the confession is, I am not going to blow your mind all the time. Um, that's really, really random, but yeah, sure, go on. I know, right? But it's true. We all learn in different ways and we heal in different ways. So we have different strategies that work for us. That makes total sense. But how do I find out what works for me? Well, you could possibly download the free ebook I created to help you figure it out and find some ways where you can use your personality to make the most of your healing journey. Um, that sounds amazing. How do I do that? You just go to swanwaters.com slash healing dash tools and you get your copy. And uh, is it free? That's right. It is free. All you have to do is just go to swanwaters.com slash healing dash tools and tell us what to send your copy. Are you telling me that all I have to do is go to swanwaters.com slash healing dash tools and get my free copy? I think that's what I just said. Oh my God. I'm going to do that right now. You're awesome, darling. I guess confession time is over. Back to the podcast. Yeah. yeah. That was, that was how I did it. And so. I think, yeah. And I think like the, the, I, this idea that you stress, like it's so important when you are trying to get out of a situation like this. And that's why I just want to say this. It like having a strategy in place is so important. And if you can't oh, yeah. think of one, you know, get help from, um, even like I sometimes say to people, like talk to people in a, in a, in a shelter, like a domestic violence shelter. And they're like, yeah, but I don't need to go into a shelter. And I'm like, that doesn't matter. The people that run those have an understanding of what's going on. They'll be able to point you in the right direction. They'll, yep. they'll you need know to where the resources are within your, and you need to you need their knowledge, their know-how, their, their knowledge. You need to know what your rights are. Yeah. Exactly. And those and those vary so greatly across the globe. So, and then they'll, mm -hmm. they'll, they'll understand the local situation that you're dealing with. So that's always a good yep. source of information in that. Even if you're thinking like, well, I don't need to go into a shelter because, you know, maybe you do have a job or maybe you do have family that you could stay with. But those people have knowledge that is invaluable um to that to yeah. that escape plan because the escape seriously is the as is for most people the most dangerous bit of this whole um this whole experience because that's often when even if there was no physical violence in a relationship that's when it might uh escalate to that point yeah because because they yeah. are starting to lose control right 74 percent by the way <laughs> yeah it's yeah. ridiculous yeah. numbers that's uh, that was always the thing too is worrying about what would finally make him snap i still um you know i hate to admit to it because i've healed so much but i still once in a while will have a nightmare about him mm. and um you know, it's just the realization that you live for so long wondering the underlying knowledge that that 
propensity is there, right? That mm. that trait is there. It might be a little late. It might be quiet, might be buried, but it's there. Yeah. Um, but the Violence Against Women Act, the last stats that I saw were 74% of all reported intimate partner attacks, physical attacks, and or murders occur after the target has left the relationship. Yeah. 74%. So I mean, and and that again, just and people know that women know that in particular. Yeah, and and this is this is why it's so important to have that strategy in place to really think about yeah. what you're doing. We we have a bit on on the website that is freely accessible that talks about things to think about when you are uh, planning your escape. Um, and has that same advice uh, about the going to people with a local shelter and our ultimate, the ultimate thing that we always say to people, like I have this one on repeat, which is document, 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 get as much, get like, yeah, I can't I, imagine where you learned that from. I actually, well, actually I learned that separately from you, but you definitely confirmed it. Um, I did this with my, uh, when I worked for that narcissistic boss, I made sure that I had paper trail of everything. Mm-hmm. And, and he obviously to. always wanted to have just, you know, uh, one-on-one meetings because they don't usually get recorded. There's no, other people into the conversation and what I started doing for example is sent him emails after the meeting saying this is what we discussed today blah 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 and then I would say yep. like if I missed anything or misunderstood anything please respond to the email obviously he never did and that then is his consent to okay that's what we discussed right, right. So if he then comes back with no that's not what we discussed you can say well then why didn't you respond to the email when I asked you to um, so that was one of the ways that I did that in the work situation. <laughs> yep. I've used that too. <laughs> um, and that's always a handy one because obviously they are trying to do things in a way that where you don't have that, that paper trail, right? They don't like paper trails. So create it where you right. don't have it and save stuff, uh, preferably not in the house yep. or office if it's a work thing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh <laughs> yeah yeah prepare and document and Google i have drive to say, is such a wonderful thing honestly when i gave my solicitor that <laughs> pack of paper she was ecstatic she was like this i can work with <laughs> so yeah. and that's yep. the thing like once it gets to court actions you you need to have stuff and and divorce always ends up in court uh even if it's not uh, if it's not a what you call it abuse situation, it would still go through the courts. So, uh, yeah, paper, 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 paper. <laughs> mm-hmm. Amen. Preach it, sister. Yeah. Document that stuff. Um, yep. And um, and prepare to escape. I I just mentioned as well. I said to you, it was the your fourth attempt, and the reason mm-hmm. why I said that as well is because it's important i think for people to know that that's still ahead of the curve right it's seven on average yeah seven on seven average to ten. get out and stay out and not get somehow forced or coerced back, back. yeah yeah so and i sometimes say this as well like i <laughs> i mean i left my family only the one time um in a way but i didn't if if i look back now because obviously leaving your family is a different thing um 
but leaving the family, like I, I moved to the, like mm-hmm. I, I went to school on the opposite side of the country. And then obviously I moved back, but, and then I'm, and then <laughs> I went to another school, which was in a different country, which in Europe is somewhat easier, I suppose. But, um, so in a way I was also leaving my family a number of times before I left my family. It's just that when it comes to family, I guess it's a slightly different dynamic. Um, yeah. Leaving is a slightly different thing. Um, but yay, we're out. Woohoo. <laughs> we are. And then the real work begins. Then yeah. the real then work begins. Then the real work begins. Yeah. Then you have to do all the healing. And um yeah, because I thought, you know, <laughs> it's funny now looking back, I'm like, yeah, that was such a wow. nice thought. I thought, like, well, once I leave, that's the problem sorted. That's me yeah. done. <laughs> but then you, oh, have yeah. To, yeah. then you have to yeah, navigate yeah, yeah. back. <laughs> you have to go through the whole thing again, but yeah. in the reverse. Then you have to, that's right. And that's I sometimes exactly say that, right. like, you have to go through it in reverse. So you have to go through the whole thing again, but with the bonus of now there's some light at the end of the tunnel because you're working towards better rather than just progressively worse. So there is, yeah. there's that to be said for healing, but it's not easy and it's not rainbows and unicorns. and No, it's hard work, but it's hard work that's worth the end result, you know, the old ju- juice, the juice is, I think it's well, squeeze, like- right. But when you're going through it, when you're having to. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not always pretty, but I have to say though, that it's a skill as well. Like I, not, not only do you get better in the sense that like, I'm not as triggered as often. I'm not you know, and when I am triggered, it's usually not as extreme as it used to be and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. I'm better at boundaries and, you know, all that jazz. But also, um, I'm just better at, he- like, I'm recognizing quicker, like, oh, there's something there that I need to address. And I yeah. don't find it as overwhelming or now I'm actually, oh, fun. Like, let's dig through that, see what that brings up, right? This. <laughs> That's weird, I know, but that's what I do. Uh, <laughs> no, you get you you realize at some point you may shift between um, you make the shift from healing to mastery, right? So you've done the hard, the really hard work of taking everything out and examining it and unpacking it and addressing each one of these things and learning new techniques and new ways of thinking and new everything, right? Everything. Yeah. Everything. And you reach a level of mastery that suddenly you realize, Oh, I know exactly what that is. I know exactly why I got so pissed off about that. Or I know precisely why I had that terrible dream or whatever the situation is, you know, you reach a level of mastery that then it, it almost becomes, it's like perfecting a, sport or something then it becomes super fun you're like Woo-hoo, I had oh well let's do like so, i had i had yeah. the other day when i am there's a lot of muck to dig through yeah but then at some point you're like oh i, it, I something came up for me and i was like oh i thought i oh, i thought i was done with that but apparently there's another little bit there um 
but it's like, but it's almost, uh-huh. it always makes you curious. Like, I wonder what that is. I wonder what I haven't dealt with yet about that <laughs> particular thing. Like, mm, let's go have a drink. And yep. it's like, but it's, yeah, I know that probably people who are like early on in their, in their healing are like, these chicks are just talking nonsense, but it's, we're not. <laughs> just takes time to get there. Um, and I think I always love when you say, and we've, we've put it down as your personal motto because I've heard you say it so many times. <laughs> and I, I just love it when you do it. It's like, it's nothing so special about me that you can't do it either. Or you can't yeah. do it too. Sorry. That's true. If I'm going to quote you, I should do it correctly. Uh, <laughs> that was pretty darn close though. That was almost on the, no, um, you know, it's, it's, and I'll tell you why I started saying that. Um, there were people that I knew growing up and as an adult. So people that I lived near in my neighborhood, in my nice upper middle class, fancy neighborhood, people that I went to high school with, all these people that had a certain perception of me. And they would say, well, I need to tell you something. I've been going through the same thing, but I don't think I can do what you did. I'm just not as strong as you are. I'm not as smart as you are. I'm not as, you know, blank, insert adjective here. And I just kept saying to them, I, I, I did, I said this one day and then I just kept repeating and I just said, there is nothing so special about me that you can't do this. All I did was make up my mind. Yeah. That's all I did was make up my, I, I decided that I was determined to make a better life for myself and my kids. And I got to tell you something, my kids were a big motivator because part of that was, am I really going to continue to subject these beautiful, amazing children oh, to gorgeous. this? Am I going to let gorgeous them mini. think that this, <laughs> my minis, they, you know, I thought there's no way I can keep subjecting them to this before it was just about me, right? It was, mm. I, I was the one in the, in the crosshairs, but then it was them. And I think that was the realization that really put me, you know, I am responsible for these two little people. And so whatever I need to do is whatever I need to do. So it was a matter of making a determined effort more than anything. And that doesn't mean I'm stronger than anybody or smarter than anybody or better, you know, more resources than anybody, nothing like that. So I think sometimes, often, not just sometimes, but often, when you are still in the abuse dynamic, you have become so altered that you think that you are not worth anything better. Um, You know, Brene Brown, you and I know what a big freaking fan I am of Brene Brown. Um, (laughs) But she, she says, she talks about shame. She teaches a lot about shame. And for those who don't know her, look her up because she's a researcher, a social worker researcher. Um, and she's written several books, but she defines shame as the intense feeling that you do not deserve love and belonging, that you are undeserving of love and belonging. And that theme I found runs through the abuse dynamics so deeply that people, you know, people who knew me from high school would have said, Oh my God, she's going to be this or that or the other. She's going to achieve this. She's going to do that. And for them to have to come to reckon with the idea that even someone like me Mm. 
would end up in a situation like that where someone else was defining who I was, what I ate, what I did, where I went, what I thought of myself, what career I had, um, was pretty shocking to them. But it all came down to that shame factor. And, you know, in that hour discussion we were having before we actually started recording yeah. the podcast, <laughs> that is, um, that is when things turned a corner for me. I mean, I had, that was 2016 when I did my really deep shame work. So I had been out of my marriage for six and a half years. Mm. And it wasn't until that time that I started really doing that very deep shame and vulnerability work that I realized why some of these things still happened. You know, why these things were still controlling what I thought of myself. Um, that is, that's a shocking realization. And it's a lot of work, by the way. It is. It is a lot of work. And it's, and some days, um, I, I'm sure you feel the same way. Some days you kind of slide back into it. And, um, and you can just hear yourself have one of those thoughts. Well, who am I to, I like, I had it today. I gave, uh, I gave to my friends a suggestion for an app they could use for something. And I just went into this, like, if you don't, like, if you don't want, if you don't want to use it, that's fine. And I just, this big, big, and I was like, Oh wait, like, uh, of course you understand that if you don't want to use this, then you don't have to use it. Um, and I don't have to mm -hmm. explain this to you, but I was more justifying the fact that I was even giving them input into their project, uh, which again is about how, you know, one of the things that Brene Brown says, and I was like, that is that um, shame is, uh, shame is the opposite of self-esteem. Yeah. Um, so, and that kind of explains it to me as well. So that kind of feeling of, because self-esteem is that feeling of I am worth, I have worth, I am, do you know what I mean? Like I, yeah. I have value, I have worth, I am, I am lovable. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it's those See, and the feelings. And the difference between shame and guilt. That was yeah. one thing that really hit me yeah. between the eyes. Guilt says I did something bad. Shame says I am bad. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, listen, we all feel guilty about some things in our lives because we all make mistakes and then we mm -hmm. try and, and do something for that. But we aren't, but there's nothing, nothing inherently wrong with us that makes us undeserving of love, respect, boundaries, you know, all the, all the good stuff in life. Yep. Um, and, and we, yeah, that's definitely, and so much of it, and that's where they get you. Like this is that's the game of abuse is to feed shame, because uh, we all want to be liked and loved and connected, yes. and we all like we all look for that worth, and we all look for for self esteem, um, and so that's where they that's where they get you all the time, like that's where it hacks every time. Yep. And I remember. Because you you mentioned when we were talking about the the subtle ways in which they will criticize you, and it made me think of this time where I was must have been about ten ish, 
and I had a big solo, like I, I was in a choir and I had a big solo and it went really well. And there was an article in the local newspaper and it had a picture of me singing. So it had a picture of the choir with me in front of it with spotlight on me singing my solo. That was like a big picture on the front of the local newspaper. And it was super positive about my performance. And the only thing that my mother said about it was like, oh my God, I can't, I can't believe you wore that outfit. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's that it takes away from the achievement and the, the positive, you know, the positive reinforcement of you've done something well, you've, you know, the things that build self-esteem in children Um, and take it away and make it into something negative that drowns that self or that, Mm -hmm. yeah, that self-esteem. So that feeds into the shame because obviously how we look and how we dress that, definitely comes into feeling accepted by the group the group yeah. being society you know, <laughs> it's it's funny that you mention that because you know one of the things that i discovered after doing my own shame work is it became so much easier for me to understand other people and other people's motivations and other people's behaviors and i will give you an example that it perfectly mirrors what you just said my mom years ago um told me that when she was 13 years old, she came home. Now, let me frame this up a little bit. My grandmother, her mother was a beautician back when they were still called beauticians. My grandfather was a barber. My grandmother only finished the eighth grade because she was in a very large family and they got put out to work when they were young. And so she was sort of a self-made, you know, she became a beautician. She ended up owning her own very successful shop. But my mom said when she was 13 years old, she came home from school and it was sort of the end of the year when they were doing like awards. And she said, I was voted the smartest in the class. And she said, I, I got excited. And I said, look, I was voted the smartest in the class. And she said that her mom's response was who was voted the prettiest. Mm. And as I did my shame work, I remember that coming up in my memories and, and I went, Oh, that explains why she is so obsessed with her hair. That explains why my mother is so obsessed with how she looks. Cause I was never, I was never like that. And I couldn't understand why she was. Um, I'm obsessed with knowledge. So I went <laughs> with a whole other opposite direction, but understanding that shame dynamic and mm. doing my own shame work gave me better insights. I've got better insights into my mother i've got better insights into my husband which by the way for those listening that don't know i have since remarried to um a fabulous guy that i was friends with for a long long time and we're having loads of fun and everything's good but i was able to see some of his shame drivers too and i remember when we first got together i was i had done this work and i was such a big fan of it i said to him i said you know the things that people keep secret are the things that they think make them unlovable. I said, so I'm going to share with you one of my shame stories, even though he had known me 30 something years, mm. there are plenty of things he didn't know about me. I said, I'm going to share with you one of my shame stories. And so I did. And he sat there and he goes, wow, that wasn't nearly as bad as mine. And I said, but it doesn't matter. In my mind, it was massive at the time, right? It yeah. was huge green monster. So he took that cue and he said, okay, I'm going to, you know, tell you one of my shame stories. And it was something stupid he did in high school that ended up injuring someone else. And he still feels bad about it. And it was 40 years ago. 
and you know he was very shame and i said been carrying around shame in the pit of 40 years over that and so it opened a whole conversation but i just i I did so much work. And when I say so much work, you know how much it was because you've read everything mm-hmm. I've written about it. That one, that one bit of work around the shame factor was, that was the, the pivot point mm. right there. That was what changed everything for me. Yeah. It's, it's super interesting. And I think like one of the, I don't know why this just popped into my head, but I'm just going to share it anyway. It's like, I think one of the things as well where we, um uh, yeah i find this super complex to deal with um is the shame that we feel about things it, it, uh, some of the survival survivor behavior that we've had right like when you're in that abuse dynamic you make choices and you behave in certain ways mm-hmm. that like you know now that i'm not in the situation anymore i'm like really you made that like that's what you did um, and I, I can feel bad about it. Like one of the things that, um, uh, that happened was in the work situation, um, our boss wanted to fire. There was only four, like it was him and four of us. So, it, I mean, five people in, t- in total in that office. So, um, mm. the, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a large organization. He wanted to fire one of us. <laughs> Um, it's important. That's important to the story. <laughs> that's important. He wanted to fire one of us. He didn't have the balls. But when she was on holiday, he during a staff meeting said, "Okay, I'm going to fire her. I want you to give me reasons why I should." Oh God. <laughs> which obviously super inappropriate. And I, I don't even, I can't even remember how we responded to the question. Uh, and if we even responded to the question with any, any real stuff, but what happened then was that after that staff meeting, he still didn't have the balls to fire her. So he kept her on for another six months until he finally had bullied her so much that she quit. (sighs) So here we were, and we were three people who knew he wanted to fire her. We didn't want to tell her that we knew this because, A, that's not something you want to say. B, I mean, the wrath of a narcissist. You don't want to call that shit out over yourself. So I mean, we were all, I mean, like I said, he would physically punish us for typos. So you can only imagine what he would have done if he would have figured out that we would have told her this. Mm. Um, you know, and, and so we kept it from her and I to this, well, no, not to this day, but for a very long time at very least, I felt super bad about that because she was my friend. Right. And I kept all mm. that information for her and I let him bully her out of the, out of the joint. Um, but the thing is, while you're in that situation, like I said, like you're just trying to survive. Yeah, it's self-preservation, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. And, you, and but that doesn't mean that you can't feel shame around those things, shame and guilt around those things when you're out of the situation because it's such a different. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. life looks so different when you're not like fighting for your life because you yep. are fighting for your life. Yeah, you are. You're fighting for your existence as a human. It. Yeah. it it may not be, you know, technically your heart beating, 
No. Right? It, 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 but your existence as an individual soul. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, you know what a big believer I am in someone's personal energy. And yeah. I know in looking back that he changed how I interacted with the entire world. He changed my whole energy. Yeah. Um, hey, Carrie, can I just interrupt the podcast for a second? Hey, babe. I'd usually say yes, but I'm actually reading at the moment. It's a module from the Healing Academy called Maintaining Healthy Boundaries to Survive, Heal, and Thrive. Oh, that sounds cool. Yeah, I've been finding it really helpful. What kind of things are you learning about? Uh, well, basically that boundaries are a way to define where the world ends and I begin. It's full of all kinds of different advice about how to express to other people what kind of behavior is acceptable and unacceptable to me how to protect my time and how to stop myself from feeling guilty about telling other people what my limitations are. That sounds incredible. <laughs> Babe, you do realize it's kind of weird that you sound so surprised by all this, right? I mean, you're the one who wrote the module. <laughs> <laughs> so for those people who didn't write it, but would like to read it in order to learn how to thrive after abuse, what should they do? It's super easy, Max. All they have to do is join the Healing Academy at www.swanwaters.com slash join. Sorry, I didn't catch that. Could you say that again? Sure. To access maintaining healthy boundaries to survive, heal and thrive, all you have to do is join the Healing Academy at www.swanwaters.com slash join. Cool. Thanks. Well, back to the podcast. And it was so nice to finally be able to be who I was. And the, this, is, this is another example, um, back to the controlling thing and the subtleties and whatnot. I went back to finish my first college degree um, because it had been taking entirely too long because he kept having me stop and start and I needed to work full time, blah, 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 even though we didn't have children. And, you know, anyway, a lot of factors went into it. So I finally decided, okay, I'm going to take two years and I'm just going to go full time and I'm going to work part time and I'll make it work. And my greatest love in life is science and, and medicine, science yeah. and health, health in general. And I knew that I would not go to medical school. That was not on my radar of things that I wanted to do. But I decided, okay, by this time I had 10 years of business experience and I thought, okay, what do I really want to do? And I defined what I wanted to do. I already had the business skills and some of the business education. And I thought, you know what? I really want to get a science degree. So I went back and I took up basically a pre-med degree. It was biology and chemistry. And I was so excited and I told him about it, uh, what degree I had decided on. And his response was, what kind of job are you going to get with that degree? That was his response. Mm. Now, bear in mind, he's never darkened the doors of a college. He's never gotten any post-secondary education of any kind. And I was 10 years out of high school. So I was 28 years old and bound to determine, I'm going to get this degree. I'm going to get it for me. And I'm going to get what I enjoy, what I'm passionate about. And my thought was, well, if I go on and get a graduate education, this will give me a groundwork for a lot of different things. I can do public health. I can do health administration. I can do, you know, I had a lot, a lot of options. Um, and I just remember 
you know, looking back once I was doing my healing, looking back on it, the number of times that he sabotaged that. So he took my um, student loan money out of our checking account one time and spent it, just spent it, just blew it. Well, it was thousands of dollars. So I had gotten my um, loan account check. I paid my tuition. So my tuition didn't go unpaid. But the rest of the loan that was supposed to cover expenses and books and all these other things that went with it, he emptied it out. And I was on the hook for that loan, not him. And I remember asking him about it. Well, what do you care? It's not your money. It's the government's money and you're just borrowing it anyway. So what do you care? I had some stuff I wanted to buy. And it was stupid shit. It was like sports equipment and things like that. I mean, things that he didn't need. But it was those subtle things that devalued what I was doing and who I was and what I wanted to be and where I wanted to go. Um, and he would purposely make um, noise when I was trying to study. Like he would suddenly go in the kitchen, start banging around the pots and pans and stuff. And he knew I was trying to study. Yeah, it was just stupid stuff like that that's, that is very subtle at the time. Sometimes it's just annoying and, as hell. And I think a lot of it as well, like, if one if one of those things happens then yeah okay you know whatever but it's that it's the accumulation of all of it all the time like yep. it's all of it all the time it's constantly just grinding against you um yeah because even like sometimes when i try and explain to people like when they ask me well, what is the sort of stuff that your mother would do like well i could tell you a couple of anecdotes but it's that you know what I mean? Like it's sometimes it's super hard to explain it because it doesn't, you can't quite catch it in five minutes of anecdotes. Right. No, it, it's true. And it sneaks up on you. That's the harder part. I think that, I think that was really the impetus for why I started writing because at that point, you know, you know I was technically free of them anyway. Uh, as you know, I stayed in court <laughs> for six more years after I started writing um, but I, yeah. And a sidebar, we should also mention for people listening to the podcast, my divorce cost me $600. I did it myself mm -hmm. and he did not fight anything. He, we worked everything out. He did not fight anything. He didn't even hire a lawyer or show up for the final hearing. And you know why? Cause he, he didn't think I could go through with it. Oh, he right. did not think I would go through with it. He did not fight me on anything. He did didn't show up for the final hearing, nothing, because he absolutely believed that I wouldn't go through with it. Um, yeah. So anyway, staying in court with him for all that time. But the reason I, I mentioned that is, you know, by the time I started writing, I had already been doing, dealing with the retribution for two years, hmm. almost two years. And the, what preceded that was he would, um, he would call repeatedly. And when I say repeatedly, he would call my phone. Then he would call my older daughter's phone, who was 12 at the time. Um, then he would call my younger daughter's iPod because she had a talk and text thing on there. Then he would call the house again. And he would call the house at crazy times of the day and night just and ring 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 hang up never leave a message ring 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 hang up and I was looking on the caller ID going are you serious it's 11 o'clock you can't possibly be calling to talk to the children um 
but he had finally gotten on my very last nerve. And I talked to a friend of mine who had been an attorney. She wasn't a family law attorney, but she became a teacher. And I asked her, I was like, Amy, what in the hell can I do about this crazy person? I don't like, what am I supposed to do? She's like, does he have access to the children without calling the house phone? I said, yes. One's got a regular phone. The other one's got an iPod with, you know, talking text on everything. She goes, then he doesn't need to call the house. And he doesn't need to call your cell phone. She goes, if he has access to you, now remember, visitations were completely planned out because he was in another state. So it wasn't mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm running late for pickup or anything where he needed to have that access. But um, even if even if he had, he had the girl's phones. Yeah, exactly. But she said, block him. She's like, just block him. You don't need that aggravation. The girls don't need the aggravation because they were hearing the phone ring at 11 o'clock at night and 6 o'clock in the morning. So I blocked him and he sent the police to my house. And oh, I remember. I remember welfare yeah, check, right? Yeah, well, it's supposedly a welfare check. But then when I opened the door, you know, they said, are you Lisa? And I said, yeah. And they said, well, we got a call. Or, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> we got a call from this person. And um, I said, oh, I'm sorry. And he kind of looked at me and sort of snickered. I said, let me guess. Let, let me see if I can guess what you were told. And I started telling him and he goes, yep, that's pretty much it. And I said, I'm sorry. He goes, yeah, we told him it was a civil issue and blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, I said, he's not blocked from reaching his children. He's just blocked from reaching me because I'm not listening to him ring my phone all hours of the day and night and going on and on. And, um, they were like, okay, well have a good day. And I know years later, I got a copy of that police report for the, um, for one of my court actions. Yeah. <laughs> and the and the police report was hysterical. You know, they said um adv- called called caller cuz they had his cell phone number advised that um family is perfectly fine. Checked children's phones. Um phones are in working order. Uh father has or caller has, I forget if they say father or caller has open access to children's phones as evidenced by, you know, what's on the texts and the calls and everything else. But he really, he wrote it up and I was like, damn, he really, he really did get what I was laying yeah, down. Exactly. I was telling him, yeah, okay. He, he really understood this guy is just harassing. Um, you know, and that was after sending me things like, you know, sending me an email saying the grass is too long. You want me to call Richard to come cut it? okay so who you got spying on me here well <laughs> you you kept saying you were glad to get out of this marriage and you were glad to be rid of me and I was a terrible wife and you should have done it years ago and you know never mind that it was me that filed for divorce um and you're acting like this is the greatest thing that ever happened to you but you can't leave me the hell alone mm. yeah a little obsessive and that's the control piece would you say um because obviously my situation is different in in that like it's there's not really a i'm in europe so less sort of court stuff um <laughs> lucky girl lucky but you. also but also like uh, between parents and children it's obviously different um uh, especially adult children um in their 30s they have they they get to decide whether or not they want to talk to their parents i guess um but what you say as well like the more the calmer you can keep your responses the better Yes. Um, that, and yeah, so 
my therapist at the time who had been treating us as a couple, by the way, so saw what he, what his behavior was and treated me throughout the divorce. And until I moved out of the state, he said to me one day, he's like, you have got to stop making sense of crazy. He goes, you're too far in your left brain. You're not dealing with a rational person. You're Mm -hmm. not dealing with someone who works in the realm of logic. And he says, you getting upset about that, all it does is feed him more narcissistic supply. The more of a reaction he can get out of you, the more pleasure it is for him. And I remember thinking, number one, how absolutely, utterly batshit crazy that sounded. Um, But number two, how thinking back on when I would do certain things or respond a certain way, it would send him into the stratosphere. So I remember one particular time um, when we were, I can still remember exactly what the apartment looked like that we were living in and everything. Um, It's pretty vivid memory, but he was ragging on me about something. And I just decided not to take the bait at that time. I just, I was like, okay, I'm just so not in the mood for this shit right now. And I just stood there and very calmly and very matter of factly replied to him. And the more matter of fact and calm I was, the more it drove him absolutely utterly insane. And in retrospect, it was really kind of funny and a little bit pleasing. But (laughs) at one point he ended up jumping up and down like a toddler having a tantrum. Mm, I've seen that. Yeah. He's jumping up and down because he now cannot believe that he can't get a rise out of me. Mm -hmm. He's not getting the supply that he expected to get. And so now he is literally acting like a five-year-old in my living room. Well, and I think as well, like the calmer we can remain, um, the less crazy we seem, like the less crazy they can make us seem to other people. Like we had to deal yeah. at some point with someone who, like I, okay, so <laughs> no evidence, can't take it to court, but I know that they were connected to my parents somehow. And this person was harassing us and, and constantly in our face and complaining about it, it was a neighbor and complaining about noise things and blah, 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 and calling the police and blah, blah, blah. And the calmer we were in dealing with the police, the more they thought that this person was crazy for all the accusations he was making. And I mean, Mm -hmm. I I once called, (laughs) the guy left a threatening note on our door on our birthday. Um, Stuart and I have the same birthday. Um, And I like it. I was crying and I called, I called this police officer we've been dealing with. And he was like, hang on, let me just get dressed. I'll be there in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Cause it was early morning. I was on my way to the office and he did. And I was like, thanks so much for coming. He was like, listen, when someone calls me crying because their neighbor's leaving notes in their door, then, you know, I'm, I'm going to be there if, if at all possible. But he was like, yeah, he was accusing us of all sorts of stuff. So at some point this guy, this police guy was like do you mind if i just walk around your your house just to just to double check he says like it'd be such bad form if i say there's nothing going on and you know you're hiding a drug lab in your bedroom <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> i was be, just cooking meth in the bathroom that's that, all. Just, that would be bad form 
it's like sure you know have have a go oh, um but the thing is like the calmer we were able to respond to this guy like throwing all these random accusations at us the, mm-hmm. the more the police was also oh, i i, I want to say on our side but the more they understood that we weren't actually doing anything to aggravate this person he would complain mm-hmm. he would file a noise complaint for me doing the dishes i don't know <laughs> like i don't know how you even know that i'm doing the dishes unless you're spying on me somehow but you're up against the wall or is that right yeah but anyway like so so i think like the calmer we can keep ourselves like and i mean rage and run and i don't know you did hammer to the hammer to the garden (laughs) you would hammer the garden right like you're looking or something to get some of the energy out i would i did yeah, I would punch hammer my sofa. The dirt. I would go out in the backyard with a hammer. <laughs> like, I mean, get the frustration and the yeah. anger, angry Damn. energy out of your system. But when you're dealing with other people, just try and as calm as you can keep it. You people can notice that you're emotional or frustrated or like so done. With mm-hmm. But like, try well, and, and try you and know, stay sane. <laughs> it it and that's incredible important and let me tell you the hardest thing about that for when there are children involved oh yeah I have yet to meet anyone who is a survivor of abuse that had children that didn't get threatened with never seeing their children again mm. myself included you're 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 not going to be able to take care of those kids they're you're gonna they're gonna have to come live with me you're not going to ever be able to you're not even capable of taking care of yourself why would you think that you could take care of the children? Um, the worst wound to a parent, and I won't just say a mother, because I've seen this happen mm, with my own way, husband right. and yeah. being, yeah, yeah, absolutely despised about her father. Um, so it goes both ways. Definitely. But there is no greater fear, I think, for anyone who's got children than to be told by their abuser, you're going to have to keep putting up with this or I'm going to make it my life's work to take these kids from you or at least make you fight for them over and over and over. Um, One of my girlfriends in California, we actually met because she found my blog and we ended up being really good friends. And I actually got to meet her in person a couple of years ago. Her ex-husband abuser is an attorney. And so he just creates shit and files it in in court just because he can and has bankrupted her multiple times over, like emptied her, which completely takes takes away her ability to do what? Take care of the children. Hmm. She's trying to work. She's trying to have a job and she has to keep going to court. That doesn't go over well with employers. You know, she's, I mean, it's just one thing after another. So, but I remember several months ago, Um, she texted me and she goes, well, he's finally done it. He's, he's applied for full custody of all girls, all the girls. And I said, okay, let me just tell you something. It's not going to happen. I'm just telling you right now. I I know how crazy this sounds. I know how crazy he is. I know what you're feeling and fearing, but it's not going to happen. And, but that is, that is the worst 
threat and they know it. Yeah. I That's mean, the listen, they're, they not, know it. they're not beyond using their kids as a tool oh, no. in this. Oh, it's par for the yeah. course. Are you, are you kidding? That's what they use. Yeah. So their, definitely, uh, definitely a thing. Hey, before we round this up, let me just ask you, is there something that you feel I should have asked you or that you still want to share before we wrap this up? <laughs> well, shoot, we had a long conversation at this point. <laughs> but, um, but, I, uh, but a a parting thought. Let's, yeah. let's go with, let's um, go we'll call with it that. Aubrey's final, Aubrey's final thought. Um, she'll have more and she'll share them in a blog or something. In... <laughs> yeah. This is not your final Aubrey's thought, but the final, final thought, thought of this today, podcast. <laughs> for today. For <laughs> today. On this podcast. Um, I did, I followed a lot of the normal prescribed abuse recovery stuff when I first got out. Um, and by that, I mean, I, I had a therapist I went to, I sought out support. Um, I read articles and books on recovery. I mean, God knows there's no shortage of them, but it wasn't until I finally started tackling the shame aspect that I realized what kept me stuck in that relationship from the get-go, not just during the marriage, but from the get-go, um, and what hindered my full healing. And it wasn't until I started digging deeply, and let me tell you, there were a lot of tears involved. There were a lot of sleepless nights. There was a lot of cheesecake eating um, and beer drinking and wine drinking, but there was a lot to process, hmm. but I owed it to myself. I had reached a point that was 2016. I had reached a point in my healing where I realized I, I could not go any further in my healing journey until I went deeper. And at that point is when I started unpacking all those little shame things, the shame that said, don't tell anybody at church about how you're actually living or the fact that he is not even remotely a Christian. He's just using it to cover his behavior. Um, don't tell your neighbors what's happening. Uh, when the police show up at your house, don't tell your neighbors why. Don't tell your neighbors that it's because your husband called the police on his 10-year-old daughter because she was having an anxiety attack. You know, don't tell people what's really happening. That shame of thinking, why would I let him do this to me? You know, why am I still here? All those messages that were my soul trying to come out at the time, mm. my, my own core energy trying to speak to me. When I was willing to dig through that muck, and I mean wade through some pretty ugly stuff, like the Shawshank Redemption, if you've ever seen that movie, when yep. he yep. escapes and he falls in that, <laughs> yep. has that's to go through the sewer like. system. That's exactly what it's Healing like. Healing is, is the Shawshank visual. Redemption. <laughs> Healing is the sewer system <laughs> under Shawshank Prison. Um, until you get out to the other side, sorry about that, but um. Yeah, until I was willing to do that, I could not reach my full healing potential. Hmm. Um, and since then, I've 
you know, I had a couple of post-divorce relationships that were not, they were not horrific, but they didn't end well. Um, but they were, were learning experiences. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, think... they were learning experiences. And I began to recognize that, right? Yeah. So once I realized, oh, I got with this guy because I was ashamed of myself. And I didn't think it, I was buying into the myth that nobody else would ever love me. You know, nobody else would want to. It's just fortunate for me that these two other relationships that I had before my husband we're really actually decent, decent guys and are actually still in my kids' lives to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one more than the, than the second one. Um, but, I, you know, that was part of my healing journey too, is I, I got out of the second relationship and I thought, okay, I am not doing this again until I know what the hell I'm doing. Yeah. And that is about me and not about yeah. them. I think, and this is why it's a pattern that often repeats from, even from childhood into romantic relationships as well, is because we have to deal with all the stuff that's underneath in order to make those, make choices that honor us more, that are more aligned Mm -hmm. with who we, who we really are, rather than who we've been made to believe we are. Yes. That was rather poetic. It was, and it was the truth. That's what. Uh-huh. That's, hashtag that's, truth. That is hashtag, <laughs> hashtag truth. Um, but yeah, it's um, it is a hard realization, but it's the only realization that causes actual change. You can think you've changed. You can think you're on a different track, and you are. You're on a different path. You've sure. escaped. You've done some healing. You've done some work around it. All that kind of thing. But there comes a a sort of a fork in the road where you realize, okay, I can either just keep trudging along and still repeating the same mistakes and only be somewhat happy with my life, or I can figure out what else, what other mountain I need to climb to get to that summit, to get to that beautiful, amazing view that I know that my life has a potential to be. Yeah. So, you know, to be honest... Out of all, I mean, I've learned a lot from you over the years, um, not in the least by reading your book. Uh, <laughs> but Glad I can help. Highly recommend <laughs> to people to read. It is a good read. Um, but one of the things that, that I've really learned from you is that kind of like, do you know what? You need to commit to this. Like you, you need to see your healing yeah. and hold on to it like a pit bull and never let go. Like it takes commitment to yourself and yep. to that process. Um, and that is one of the things that you've really shown me like, yeah, you can do a little bit of healing there and a little bit of healing here, but you know what, if you want to really, really sort it, you need to commit to that process and it's not always going to be fun, but you mm-hmm. need to hold on for dear life. <laughs> Oh, and most times it's going to suck. Most times it's not going to be fun at all. <laughs> but, well, the good but, thing is when you're not doing it by yourself and you've got some other people who are on that same path, then you can go, <gasps> please yeah, help me U- hold on to it, right? Yeah, yeah, the U2 factor. Oh my gosh, U2? I thought I yeah. was the only one. Yeah, when yeah you we don't talked have about to go that like, over and over. Oh my gosh. This, this may sound crazy and it's like, uh, yeah. no, that's no. the same for me. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, same for me, so. same for 10 other people I know. Yeah, it's, yeah exactly. Um, it's the, the uh, it's back to Brene's statement about being unworthy of love and belonging. There is a step during your journey 
that is critical, which is connecting with other people who you don't have to say this is going to sound crazy. And that's the worthiness of love and belonging. Suddenly you realize that even though you had this horrific, life-changing and completely insane experience that you talk to other people that go, oh my God, I had the same horrific, life-changing and, and awful experience. People share and, your insanity. You just have to find yeah. the right crazies. <laughs> That's right. Find the crazy that compliments yours. <laughs> but, but I do, you know, we, we get a lot of laughs about it in retrospect sometime and we go, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. But I do want to say this, that once I committed to that deeper level of healing and did that deeper level of work, I cannot begin to frame up for our listeners how much my life in totality completely changed. And I, I mean, every, it turns you into a positive energy magnet. Mm-hmm. It turns you, it turns you into your gratitude expands. You know, you can be grateful for the fact that you've got food. You can be grateful for the fact you've got a roof over your head and a car to drive and you know, whatever else you can be grateful for your family and your friends. It brings you to a different level of gratitude for existence and opportunities. Yeah. So I went from being at the time that I was um, divorcing my narcissistic abuser. Um, I was a full-time parent. I had a side business doing some consulting um, and was absolutely of the belief that nobody, no other man was ever going to want to be with me, that I was ugly, that I was fat, even though I was size six. Okay. You do the math. Um, that I was, uh, there was nothing desirable about me whatsoever to being a master's degree healthcare executive with a thriving and wonderful marriage and thriving and wonderful children by the way my daughters are now i saw um, prom photos this week and i'm yes in awe (laughs) yeah she's she's 16 now wow and the other one's gonna be 21 at the end of this month she like both of them blow my mind honestly they're they're so fierce they are amazing young and i can i can only I can really only attribute that to making the commitment to myself to heal myself and to teach them how to take care of themselves. And I don't mean, you know, get a good job and know how to change your oil, take care of themselves, teach them boundaries. Um, The older one said one time, this was several months ago, um, her ex-boyfriend called um, the man that, that they, that my daughter's called dad, um, called him and said, this new guy that she's dating is, is hitting her. And he caused this huge ruckus and everything. And we were like, dude, what, what are you even talking about? We're home with her. We're not, there's nothing going on. I don't know what your problem is. But the older one said, um, yeah, I pity any man who raises a hand to her ever. (laughs) Because it will not end well for him at all. And, and they're both very, um, they're very fiercely protective of themselves in a yeah. good way. 
you know, they, they, they know when a relationship needs to end, it doesn't make it less painful, but they know when a, uh, when a romantic relationship needs to end, when a friendship needs to end because it's toxic or it no longer is a, a good thing. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty amazed. The and I think as well, old- one of the most amazing things I think we can teach our, our kids, and I, I mean, mine are all fur, but you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got a few no. of those too. <laughs> um, no, but I think one of the things, like when we commit to healing ourselves, we are also teaching our kids that when bad stuff happens to us, which, you know, it's life, bad stuff's going to happen then we can mm-hmm. heal ourselves. And I think that is an example yeah. that is resiliency more than anything. Yes. Um, you know, we're, we're allowed to heal ourselves. We're allowed to make mistakes and try again. Uh, all those lessons I think are, are, you know, beyond credit cards. I didn't want to say oh, yeah. the brand of credit card <laughs> because I'm not sure if I can. <laughs> We'll get a legal cease and desist letter. <laughs> but no, it's, it's, it's true. It's true. One of the things that if you commit to your own healing and you have kids, what you're also doing is teaching them resiliency. Yeah. And, you know, we're all going to have bad stuff we face in life. We are. That's just the, the nature of it. But, you know, both you, you know full well, but both my kids have PTSD and anxiety mm-hmm. disorder. And the older one has anxiety much worse than the younger one um, because she was often the target of his abuse. But their resiliency level at the ages of 20 and 16 is not something to take lightly. No. It, is my, it, it is my reassurance that even if I was not here tomorrow for them, they would do fine they, they would, would do great they would ass. they would thrive they would find a way um and part of that was also owning my story with them part of that yeah. was being honest with them and because their inner voices told them these things were bad these things were not good this was this was a bad experience my father was this that or the other that had nothing to do with me telling them anything but at one point um one of my dear friends, Mary, said to me, if you keep lying to them or, or, or glossing over it, you're going to teach them not to trust their inner voice. Yeah. And I thought, holy crap, she's right. Yeah. So, and, and yeah. It, you know, it's, it's that, that is so true. And um, yeah, and your inner voice, oh, that's the, that's the biggest reprogramming that we do. Um, oh, yeah. So, all right. Okay. So we could talk for another, like, four hours but let's not <laughs> or let's at least not today uh, we'll break it up we'll break it up into episodes <laughs> but we'll definitely we'll definitely do this again um yeah so i'm just gonna wrap wrap it up um definitely definitely go get bodies in the basement from amazon and read it because it's a good read and it will it will you know give you good insights and in the level of crazy of captain crazy um mm-hmm. which is pretty crazy um and uh it, it has lots of info about how that abuse dynamic works and how uh, it affects you and how you can get through some of that um some of this those effects and um yeah 
that was yeah i call it i call it half novel half textbook yeah (laughs) that's really really what i was going for was okay here's the actual story and all the nitty-gritty details and dynamic stuff and emotions and everything behind it and here's what you can do about it (laughs) exactly and that's why like it is it is so easy to read because it has all the kind of narrative and weird crazy stuff um which which is oddly enjoyable when you're not in the situation and you're like yeah I remember something similar happening to me like and you can kind of you know it's that kind of now I can look back and laugh at it a little bit but then there's also just really practical Mm -hmm. advice I think and that's why I love having you on the team um because Swan Wars is all about that practical advice and practical skills and 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 strategies to get past Mm -hmm. your experiences so that all right we will talk more the next time yep for now we're We're the been there done that team bye thank you